Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the Docellacast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an effortlessly Apple bias. Today is Sunday, March 31st, 2019, and this is show number 725. Well, this coming week, we are going to go out and see our friends Dean and Suzanne in Zion. And because of that, we will be doing the show live from right outside the Zion National Park in Utah. And Chit Chat Across the Pond will be recorded out there, too. So you're going to hear the uh, audio change a little bit. But uh, And hopefully the live audience will get to see some sausage made because things usually go horribly wrong when we try to uh, do this from out of town. Well, I'm starting to get super excited about MacStock coming up on July 27th and 28th in Chicago. If you've been thinking about attending, but you haven't signed up yet, you can use the discount code PODFEET to get $10 off the already discounted early bird ticket price. That'll be only $169 for a full weekend of activities. It is so much fun. You have to go. It is, if there's any way you can get yourself to Chicago for July 27th, 28th, I hope you really will. And hey, 10 bucks off. It's a discount. It's exciting. This early bird pricing will end at the end of April. So this is a great time to sign up. Now I'm going to be speaking again this year and I love to be on stage and be the center of attention. You guys know that, but I'm looking forward even more to hearing what everyone else is going to teach me at MaxDoc. I learned so much there and I'm also really looking forward to meeting new friends and hugging old friends again this year. Okay, not always, they're not always old, but you know what I mean, long-term friends. Anyway, go check out MaxDoc Expo at MaxDocExpo.com. This week on Chit Chat Across the Pond, I asked Jeff Gamut to come on the show to talk about his new job as a text expander evangelist for Smile. We talk about some of the cool things you could do with text expander that you may not know about, how text expander works on Windows now, how awesome Jean McDonald was when she was in the job. Let's see if Jeff can, can measure up to that. And we even talk about funny snippet abbreviations. I don't normally have people come on the show to talk about their products, but I am such a fan of Text Expander, and I find Jeff such a delightful company that I just wanted to combine the two for the most fun. You can find this episode in your podcatcher of choice under Chit Chat Across the Pond Lite or the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed. As always, you can also play it directly from podfeed.com, episode number 588. You know, I was so excited after talking to to Jeff. I mean, maybe he is really good at this uh, this evangelist thing because I've decided to do my next Screencast Online tutorial about Text Expander, not the low end stuff, but the harder stuff that I've always wanted to learn. Because the best way to learn something is to have to teach it. So that's what I'm going to take on for the next uh, the next tutorial. I'm super excited about that because I'll get to play with Jeff even more because I'll be asking him all these questions as I try to figure out how to use it correctly. I like to do my product and software reviews as tales of adventure filled with intrigue and twists and turns as I try to navigate the perils of usage. This is not one of those reviews. I received the new AirPods uh, just this week, about 10 minutes before I wanted to go for a walk. I opened the box, I pulled them out, I opened the case, and my iPhone instantly showed a picture of an open AirPods case with the connect button. I tapped it. Then the screen changed to say, Podfeet's AirPods number two and showed me the percentage charge. I was done connecting. That was it. That was pretty anticlimactic. So I thought, well, what about my other AirPods? Shouldn't the phone be confused? Wouldn't I at the very least have to navigate the mire of settings to go into Bluetooth and disconnect from my original pair? Nope. No fun to be had there at all. I put the new AirPods in my ears, 
I set the charging case down on my Unravel Qi charging pad, and it started to charge. I didn't even get to fiddle with where I set it down on the pad. It just worked. I went for an hour and 17-minute walk. Tesla made me take the long route that day while listening to some podcasts. One of the things I was most looking forward to with the new AirPods was changes to Siri. With the Generation 1 AirPods, you had to double-tap one one of them to fire up Siri. But with Gen 2, you simply say, Hey, S-Lady! And she gets to work. I asked her to stop the podcast. Boom! Stopped. Start the podcast. Boom! Started right back up. I've tried hundreds of times to get Siri to fast-forward or reverse a specific number of seconds in several different podcatchers, and it never, ever works. She'll go exactly 30 seconds, or she will do nothing at all. With Gen 2 AirPods, she was able to get Overcast to go exactly the number of seconds I requested every single time. Now, to be fair, it's possible that Overcast got updated so that it listens properly and that this isn't an AirPod Siri improvement at all. But I just figured it out that it does work now. The biggest advantage of not double tapping on your AirPods to engage Siri is that you don't knock them out of your ear. I hadn't expected the huge speed improvements, though. Siri was noticeably faster, and that made me more likely to use it. One of the big promises of AirPods Gen 2 is that they're supposed to connect to your devices more quickly. I did some tests comparing Gen 1 and Gen 2. While the new ones are measurably faster, the main difference I noticed was that the new ones were consistent. I conducted 12 experiments for each set of AirPods, switching back and forth between my Mac and my iPhone. On the Mac, the connection times for Gen 1 and Gen 2 were nearly identical. The original AirPods took an average of 6.5 seconds to connect to the Mac, while the second generation AirPods took an average of 6 seconds to connect. I gotta say, if that half second makes a difference to you, you might want to loosen up your schedule. But on iPhone, the difference was far more dramatic. AirPods 1 averaged 9 seconds for connection time versus 4 seconds on Gen 2. Now, while that length of time itself might not be that big of a deal to you, I think it can be even more aggravating when the time to connect is inconsistent. In all six of my AirPod Gen 2 tests, those AirPods connected to my iPhone at exactly 4 seconds every single time. But the Gen 1 AirPods took as long, I'm sorry, as short as 6 seconds and as long as 15 seconds. That's a lot of variability and that can be really, really aggravating because you're like, I don't know, did they connect? I don't know. Well, one other metric Apple is spouting is a 30% reduction in latency. That's the time from when you, say, tap on the screen on the phone until you hear what you tap. This is evidently really important in gaming, but I've also heard that it's really important for visually impaired folks. I can imagine it would be really annoying to have a big lag between you tap and when you hear voiceover talking into your ear. I also thought that maybe the reduced latency would make it bearable to use AirPods as in-ear monitors for my own voice when I'm recording. A significant delay when monitoring makes it impossible to speak normally. You find yourself slowing down as you try to talk. And that, of course, makes it even worse because you're slowing down, so you slow down, so you slow down some more. Well, I'm not a gamer, but I do know how to do some rudimentary stuff with voiceover turned on. I tested both Gen 1 and Gen 2 AirPods with voiceover, and I'll be darned if I could tell the difference. Now, I'm not disbelieving Apple that it's 30% faster, and I'm not disbelieving those who've told me latency is a problem with voiceover. I'm just saying 
I couldn't tell the difference. I couldn't actually notice there was a lag at all. So I, I must be testing the wrong thing in that. But next, I tried testing the two generations of AirPods using Audio Hijack, where I have sessions set up to monitor my own voice. As I'm recording to you right now, I can hear my own voice coming playing through my ears. There's a slight lag on wired headphones, but with, uh, with Bluetooth headphones, it's awful. It's really, really slow. And like I said, makes you slow down. So it turns out, so I, I attached my two generations of AirPods uh, to, and, to my Mac and tried to use Audio Hijack to listen to myself. It turns out if you want to really irritate your Mac and Audio Hijack, try having two sets of AirPods paired at the same time. At any given moment in time, macOS would expose neither or both sets of AirPods. Often the audio indicator in the menu bar would sort of pulse. You know, like when Wi-Fi is searching for a signal, you see the Wi-Fi signal go from the little arc out to the bigger arc. Well, the same thing happens on the audio indicator, and I'd never seen that before. This would usually happen when Bluetooth was showing both of them connected. Then Audio Hijack really got its panties in a bunch. It would recognize both sets, but when I tried to switch from one set to the other, it would just spin and then it would go, yep, I'm ready, but it would never actually start the session, so I couldn't hear myself. For a very brief moment, very distant apart in time in my experiment, so I couldn't hear it side by side, I was able to get each set to work with Audio Hijack. But they both seem to have about the same amount of latency or lag in this case, and in both cases, it was way more than I could ever stand to use. Now, I believe it's quite possible my tests are flawed, but these were both real-world problems that I would have liked to have demonstrated. Now, last week, I did a review of the Unravel charging pad from Ampere, which I still love. And by the way, if you haven't heard, Apple just decided not to ever ship the, uh, what was it they're calling it, AirPad, ChargePad? I don't know. doesn't even matter what it's called because we don't get to have it. So if you might want to go back and listen to that Unravel Charging Pad uh, review I did a couple of weeks ago or last week. Anyway, when I told you about that, I explained that they're also selling a Pods charging case for $20 that gives you Qi charging for your AirPods. I still think that's a great option, especially at that price. But I bought a new uh, wireless charging case from Apple when I bought my Gen 2 AirPods. So I have two cases and two sets of AirPods now. The new AirPods are $159, or you can pay $40 more and get them with the wireless charging case. Turns out you can also buy just the wireless charging case for $79 if you want to use it with your existing Gen 1 AirPods. $79 for the Apple charging case versus $20 for the Ampere wireless case makes me kind of ask what we get for the extra money. With the Ampere charging case, of course, it fits over the original case, so it's a fair amount bigger. It's not huge but it's definitely bulkier. The Ampere case doesn't allow pass-through wired charging because it doesn't have a lightning port on the outside. The Apple charging case does have a lightning port, giving you the flexibility of wired or wireless charging. This can be important if you ever like to, say, throw your case into a bag while charging from a power bank. In a pinch, you can, of course, wiggle the AirPods case out of the Ampere case to get to that lightning port, but that's not very elegant to have to go through that. If you have Gen 1 AirPods, remember that the case itself is a battery, so over time, the ability of the old case to fully charge your AirPods will start to degrade, which might be an excuse to go for the new wireless case. I think it's really interesting that Apple chose to give us a choice on the Gen 2 AirPods. Having both wired or wireless options has to make everyone happy. Now, I started this review explaining how disappointing it was that AirPods just work. 
Usually at the very least, I can pull out a good delivery story, right? If you've been following along with me over the years, you know that one of my frustrations is that I manage to find the most annoying way to buy my devices, either by standing in line when I don't need to or waiting at home for a delivery that never comes when they're sitting on shelves in the store. The one thing you can always depend on is that I'm the very last person to get delivery from UPS. I can watch the little truck go around my neighborhood on the UPS tracking site, and I can see it then drive blocks away, sit still for three or four hours. I don't know. He's having lunch. Not sure what's going on. The last time I was waiting for an Apple delivery, I tracked the truck till it turned down my street. I ran outside like a little kid looking for the ice cream truck, and he drove right on past me. Well, when I got my shipment notification for AirPods and I saw it was via UPS, I knew there'd be no problem at all going to the gym in the morning because, remember, they never come to my house early. I'm always last house on the road. So picture this. I'm done exercising at the gym around 9.15, and I head over towards the showers. My Apple Watch pings me with a ring doorbell alert that there's activity at my front door. I race back to my locker, I undo the lock, I yank out my phone, and I hit the notification. Of course, the Wi-Fi signal isn't good enough back in the locker room, so I can't get the Ring app to to respond. I quickly swipe down and I hit the Wi-Fi button to disengage so I can rely on cellular. Bless Apple for that button, by the way. Anyway, as I'm doing all of this, I get a second Ring notification that now someone's actually ringing the doorbell. The first one, they were just there. I open the Ring app and the video opens up and there's my UPS guy still at the door. I was able to talk to him via the Ring doorbell and I asked him if he could leave it. He explained that it required a signature. Now, I mean, it's only like $200. I couldn't believe they wouldn't leave it, but he said, nope, it's got to have a signature. I was about to ask him to take it to my neighbor's house when he said the craziest thing. He asked me, so you want me to come back later? I was floored. I didn't know they could do that. I said, yes, please, and I asked him his name. He said it was Justin, and he'd come back in the afternoon when I'd be home, and he did. He definitely earned the title of my little friend Justin. The bottom line is the new Generation 2 AirPods with wireless charging are fantastic. They pair easily, they charge via Lightning or any Qi-compatible wireless charger like that Ampere Unravel, which I'm not getting any kind of bonus points for telling you about. I just really like it. The sound is fantastic on the new AirPods. Siri works much better without needing to be tapped, and she responds faster, and they connect to your Mac and iOS devices much more quickly and consistently. I cannot think of a single downside to Apple's new AirPods with wireless charging. Steve has had really bad luck in the last six months, getting rear-ended not once, but twice. He had a request for a dash cam on his gift list for years, but I never got around to figuring out which one to get him. The problem is, Steve has opinions, so I needed him to research and, or me to research and then present options to him, and then he could act surprised when he opened his gift. I don't know a lot about dash cams, so rather than try to do all the research myself, I headed over to The Wirecutter at thewirecutter.com to see what they had to say. If you don't use The Wirecutter to at least help you start your research, then you're doing far too much work on your own. The Wirecutter cuts to the chase, and it tells you the best whatever it is to get for most people. Then they tell you a budget option and usually an option if you've got more money burning a hole in your pocket. They do tons of testing on their own and provide you with the answer to the question, what should I buy? They also give you a list of things to consider as you branch out into your own research. For example, with dash cams, they have six considerations with paragraphs describing what to look for. 
They talk about image quality, controls, mounting systems, display, size, and field of view. Now, while I didn't go for their top recommendation or their least expensive recommendation, I went for one they designated as also great. It's the Owl Car Cam from OwlCam.com. Owl Car Cam costs $350. Many dash cams attach to your car using adhesive. And as you know, Steve and I are really particular about our cars. So that was a non-starter. Anything I got to stick somewhere with sticky stuff is not going in my car. In contrast, Alcar Cam uses a suction cup tightened by a lever to attach to your front windshield. It also has a support beam that attaches to the mounting bracket and extends downward to the base of the windshield to help stabilize Alcar Cam. Many of the other dash cams shown on the wire cutter have a wire hanging down over the dash to the DC power port. You know what we used to call the cigarette lighter back in the 70s? Anyway, that's how those uh, webcams get their power. We were having none of that ugliness in our cars either. I'll get into how our car cam gets its power a little bit later on, but trust me, no wires over our dash. The wire cutter talks about how it's important to get a wide field of view, but not too wide. They preferred 140 to 160 degrees, but the owl car the owl car cam has a field of view of 120 degrees. Turns out the more wide angle the lens, the more distortion there is on the sides of the image, and I really wanted something that had as little distortion on the sides as possible. When Steve and I were at CES, we interviewed John Hauer of Alcar Cam, and I told him I had bought one for Steve. I explained that it wasn't as much fun for me because only one person can monitor a given camera from their mobile app. So I bought him this camera and he put it in his car and then I didn't get to play with it. He said that wasn't something they're likely to change. I don't know. I guess people see it as spying. I see it as playing with the tech. He did say they're working on an enhancement, and I think it's actually been implemented already, if I'm interpreting my menus correctly, where one person could monitor several cameras. It's sort of the opposite of what I was looking for, but this would be useful if you personally own more than one car, like maybe you own a car and a truck. You want to be able to look at two cameras. Anyway, after CES... John sent me an Owl Car Cam for my car. Installation of Owl Car Cam is incredibly easy. You connect to one of the included or connect one of the included support beams to the Owl Car Cam, choosing the length that will bring your camera up from the windshield base to the height where you can easily see it, but not so high that it obstructs your line of vision any more than necessary. As I mentioned earlier, the camera sticks to the the front windshield with a suction cup, and it's secured by a lever so it gets a really good grip on the windshield. I mentioned that many webcams have that unsightly cable hanging down over your dash. Our car cam is powered instead via the onboard diagnostics port or OBD2 port. This is usually down under the dash on the left-hand side, you know, around where you find the front hood release in many cars. Our car cam gets its power via that OBD port even while your car is off. To ensure your battery doesn't drain too low, the Alcar Cam shuts itself down after three days if you're not uh, of you not running the car. You can change that time too. I think you can go down to 24 hours instead of 72 hours. Anyway, we figured out there was a 72-hour limit when we had the car in a parking garage while we were in Las Vegas for a few days. I guess it's a good feature, but we wanted to keep seeing if anyone was messing with the car after those three days. The Alcar Cam has a very long cable that will accommodate pretty much any size vehicle. They include a spudger to shove the wire under the gasket surrounding the front windshield. This makes the wire virtually invisible, which delights me. Now, the downside to a long cable is that you have to figure out how to wrap up all of that excess cable. They include some nice black cable wraps, 
but around that part of my cart, there's really nothing to attach this XX cable to. So it just sort of hangs there, this kind of wad of cable. You'd have to know to look for it, but it's not quite as clean as I would have liked. The entire process of installing Owl Car Cam in my car took maybe 15 minutes, and that included fussing around with those wires at the end. Owlcar Cam has a beautiful video screen that shows you the front-facing camera view on the top and the rear-facing camera on the bottom half, kind of a split view. You can swipe up or down to see only one view, but we found out in usage that only the viewable camera is recorded in that mode, whereas both cameras are recorded when it's in split-screen mode. The screen is also a touchscreen where you can set the brightness, volume of audio, and toggle on and off the recording of inside audio, and you can turn the display itself on and off. Alcar Cam has a unique feature from many dash cams. It has a cellular radio in it, and you get one year free of LTE service. This connection means you can be notified whenever your car is jolted when you're away from it and potentially catch someone in the act of breaking into your car. Video from incidents like this are uploaded to the cloud for live video and history. Like I said, it's free for a year, but after that, it's $10 a month or $100 per year. By default, the motion detection gets a lot of false positives, mostly from me getting in the car. Now, you would think that since my phone is connected to the camera, it would know it was me, but it seems to think it needs to tell me every time I get in the car. After a couple of months of being annoyed by how many notifications I was getting, I happened to actually look at all of the settings in the app and you can turn off what they call yellow alerts. In fact, they even call yellow alerts often when you get into your car. So I probably should have read the manual, you know? Anyway, the biggest advantage of the LTE service is getting live alerts and being able to bring up live video. In our experience, though, the live video took forever to come up. Forever is defined as so long we would give up and just hope it wasn't a real problem with the car. Now, perhaps it's a limitation of the LTE service that it just takes too long, but we operate mostly in really strong areas of service, so that was kind of disappointing. The quality of the video from the camera is very dependent on how you view it. If you simply go into live video or history, it's dreadful. I mean, it's horribly pixelated. Again, I suspect this is because access is via LTE, but that video is kind of useless unless your car's sitting still. However, from the history, if you find a section you'd like to see in high definition, there's a share sheet icon that allows you to upload a one-minute, five-minute, or 20-second quick clip directly to your phone. Now, it isn't super speedy to do this. Again, I was doing it over LTE, but the video you get looks pretty good. You get a couple of editing functions on downloaded videos. You can zoom in on a section, add a timestamp, and trim the video. I think it's really designed for quick sharing of video. One of the reasons we were interested in dash cams was because of a hit and run that happened to us. I took a whole bunch of iPhone photos as the guy who hit us escaped the scene, and I got a good side view showing him and the make and model of his car and a pretty good shot of his license plate. In that shot I got of his license plate, we could easily see all but two digits of it, but matched with the make and model, we were able to figure out the missing characters, and we actually helped this California Highway Patrol catch the guy. We were kind of hoping that with a dash cam, the video would be able to better capture a license plate. Unfortunately, the high-def video from Owl Car Cam just really doesn't capture license plates unless the car is stopped directly in front of us. Any amount to the side or with any movement in the video, it just isn't clear enough. This is 1080p video, by the way, I think. Anyway, there's also a rear-facing camera, which I naively thought would give me a view out the back window. 
It simply does not provide the functionality. If I'd been thinking logically, I'd have realized if you really want to see out of the back of your car, the only way to effectively do that is to have a second camera on the rear window. Duh. Alcam's rear-facing camera exposes perfectly for the inside of the car in hopes of getting video of somebody breaking in. For example, when you open the door at night, two very bright LED lights turn on on the display, which lights up the car's interior to expose the miscreant breaking into your car. And it also has the added benefit of helping you see inside your car at night, which I kind of like. The Alcar Cam is a feature they call OK Presto. If you're in your car right now and you had an Alcar Cam, you would, I would have just triggered a short clip from the Alcar Cam to be pushed to your phone. The cool part is the clip starts 10 seconds or so before you say the trigger phrase, because it's always recording when you're driving. So it just says, OK, go grab that 10 seconds right before I said that. And the internal camera, this could capture your child's first words or something particularly funny you did in the car, like some awesome carpool karaoke. It could also be valuable to have quick access to something that happened in front of the car. Maybe you just saw an accident or that meteorite that fell from the sky and you want to be the first to send the video to the TV stations. I mentioned that to my son, Kyle, and he said, no, it turns out that only works in Russia. Anyway, Alcar Cam is always recording when you're driving and also records all of the motion detection incidents. They have a timeline history for the front or rear camera so you can scroll back and forth and find a specific incident. It's a little hard to pinpoint the time because um, they don't let you kind of zoom in and out on the time scrolling. So it's really wide. And so to scroll like to this morning is maybe 20 scrolls. So you really it's it's made for when you just saw something happen. I think it would be pretty easy there. Now, if you don't pay the LTE fee after the first free year, you can still download videos from Owl Car Cam directly to your phone. In theory, that is. When you're in your car, you tap on the secret three-dot menu. One option is to choose Direct Connect. In theory, it should pop up a request to join a network created by the camera. In my experience, it likes to show an error saying connection failed and tells you to restart your camera. I was unable to find any way to restart the camera in the user manual. I couldn't find it on screen on the device. I couldn't find it on the FAQs on the site or in an online search. In the end, I resorted to yanking the OBD connector out and I restarted the camera that way. I tried again and this time I did get the option to connect to the Owlcar cam network, but then it just spun for five minutes. Steve suggested maybe my VPN had kicked in, which was a great guess. I'm always tripped up like that. But it was super tricky to teach the VPN to trust the Owlcar cam network because every time I flipped out of the Owlcar cam network, the Wi-Fi would disconnect from it so I couldn't see or, or it stopped broadcasting its network so I couldn't see it. I need to be able to see it in order to uh, teach my VPN to trust it. Finally, after three to four tries, I got it added to the trust so the VPN stayed off. But sadly, that didn't fix the problem. While I watched it spin and spin and spin, I called the Owlcar Cam support line, available 24-7. But after five minutes of watching the Owlcar Cam spin, or app spin and being on hold, they told me to leave a message because they had higher than expected call volumes. So I can't tell you how well Direct Connect works because it's, and that's what you'd be using if you don't pay the LTE fill, the LTE fee, I should say. So they told me to leave a message and I left that message at least two days ago and they haven't called me back yet. When I first got the Owl Car Cam for my car, I found it pretty distracting. Even with the smallest support beam, it stuck up way above my center console. 
I don't think it was hard to see around it, and I doubt it would have obstructed my line of vision enough to cause an accident, but having a video screen constantly moving in your line of vision is definitely distracting. I found myself looking at it. I also noticed that at night, somehow the angle of the video screen was just right to reflect the image up onto the windshield, which made it even more distracting. I guess I should learn to use the toggle, the screen off, uh, the display off thing, especially at night. Well, I was getting used to having the camera in the center, and I thought, ah, maybe it's okay, until my daughter Lindsay got in the car just recently, and she went, whoa, that is really distracting. So maybe it really is. When I first installed Owl Car Cam, I actually knew that its location, being in the center, was against the Department of Motor Vehicles driving rules for the state of California. You are definitely not allowed to mount something on the windshield anywhere but on the sides. To be specific, In California, you're allowed to mount or stick something on the windshield in a very few specific locations. You can put it in a 7-inch square on the passenger side window lower corner or the lower corner of the rear window, or you can use a 5-inch square in the lower corner of the driver's side windshield. You're also allowed to put it on the side windows behind the driver or a 5-inch square located in the center uppermost portion of your windshield, and they say specifically for an electronic toll payment device. After driving within the center for a few months, I decided to see if I could mount it legally in the left-hand corner instead. I had to remove the support beam entirely because I couldn't get it far enough over into the corner with it attached. I hope the suction cup alone will keep it in place, and so far it seems to be able to. After quite a bit of work, I was able to get it to stick to the windshield five and one-sixteenth of an inch from the corner. I hope a police officer won't get me for that one-sixteenth of an inch. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, the police officers, they're never going to pull you over for that. But I sort of think they came out with these rules about where to put things, like because they knew what they were talking about and trying to keep us from getting in accidents. So I kind of like to follow driving rules because I figure there was a reason they came up with that. The other thing is I personally felt distracted looking at it as well. Ever since I moved it over to the left, I like the Owl Car Cam way better. I just feel like it's this uh, accessory that's there. I notice it, but it's not so much in my focus. You know, I'm not looking at it all the time. It's just sort of like, yeah, it's okay. It's, It's over there. It feels like it has the status it should have now in terms of my attention. I like it a lot better over there. I wanted to mention one just curious thing we've observed with the Owl Car Cam. It appears that the Owl Car Cam in Steve's car is somehow being triggered by Lindsay's Ring Floodlight Cam. Her Ring camera is mounted above the garage, and all night long, the two green front-facing LEDs on the Owl Car Cam flash on and off. These green LEDs are the motion sensor lights for the front-facing camera. The only thing we can figure is that the two different devices, each having infrared sensors for motion, are causing the Ring to accidentally trigger the Owl Car Cam's motion sensor. Not an important part of the review, but we just thought it was interesting. Alcar Cam has some complex fee structures. I already mentioned the $10 per month fee for LTE after your first year. There's also a credit system. I absolutely do not understand this. On the main menu screen for the app, it says you can buy 60 credits for $5. One credit equals one minute of live view of history over or one OK Presto over LTE. When you ask for history on the app, it briefly flashes up a notice telling you you're spending credits if you're on LTE. I haven't been charged, so I think 
This is maybe after the first free year if you don't pay for the LTE service. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it might be on top of the LTE fee or it might be in place of the LTE fee. Like maybe you hardly ever need to use it over LTE so you can just do it with credits. I'm not really sure. That You can also enable emergency services notifications in Owlcar Cam. This calls, it costs $8 per month on top of the LTE fee. If Owlcar Cam detects a serious crash, they'll actually call you on the Owlcar Cam, right? It's an LTE connection. It's got a phone in it, I guess. If you're not okay, it will call emergency services for you. Bottom line is that Owlcar Cam is a beautiful display and it is extremely easy to install and looks great in the car. I like how it's powered by the OBD port and has no ugly wires hanging around. With a free year of LTE, you really get a chance to figure out if you'd get value out of the notifications and the ability to view live video feeds from your car. I wish it was significantly faster bringing up live video, but again, that's probably a limitation of cellular cellular speeds. Most dash cams simply record what's in front of you for accident or meteorite reporting, but Owlcar Cam can detect break-ins and record what you are doing in case of an accident. I think that would be a great way to prove you are not the one texting during the accident. You weren't texting, right? Right? Anyway, at $350, Owlcar Cam is expensive, and I think to get the best use out of the device, you're really going to want to pay the $100 per year for the LTE service. I haven't done exhaustive testing of different models of dash cams, so I really can't compare the performance to other models. I suggest you check out thewirecutter.com for more options before you decide. I'd like to give a shout out to new Patreon supporters of the show, but I missed one from way back in February. I want to especially thank Eduardo Sanchez for donating some of his hard-earned cash to help fund the making of the Podfeet podcast. If you want to be one of the cool kids like Eduardo, just go over to podfeet.com slash Patreon and sign up to pledge a recurring dollar amount. It's as little as a dollar per NoSillaCast episode. I mean, come on, is this worth a dollar? This is gold right here. Well, you don't have to give gold. It's just, you know, it's a credit card. Anyway, I truly thank all of you who helped support the show in any way you can. About a month ago, Dave Hamilton of the Mac Geek Gab and the Mac Observer came on Chit Chat Across the Pond number 584 to teach us about mesh routers. I learned so much from him on that episode. One of the biggest things I learned that I thought would help me at my house was that range extenders aren't stupid anymore. He explained that some of the modern ones actually give you some of the benefits of mesh. I'm going to walk you through my quest to justify buying a range extender for myself, and hopefully the path will help you see if you could benefit from a range extender. If you've been listening for a while, you might remember that I have a giant beast of a router, the Netgear Nighthawk R8500. This is a tri-band AC5300 router, and while this specific model is discontinued, you can still buy it on Amazon for around $300. Netgear sells a lot of similar models now, if you want the latest and greatest. A while back, I tested the Netgear Orbi mesh system in my house, and oddly, the single, powerful router outperformed the mesh system for me. In talking over my extensive iPerf tests with Dave, we figured that it was because my house is a cube with no wire mesh in the walls, and the router is almost in the center of the cube upstairs. This is pretty much an ideal condition for a single router. But as much as I brag about my great router coverage, I was covering up some real-world problems. While I could walk around my house with my Mac and go to, say, speedtest.net 
and get 100 megabits per second down and up in every single room in the house. And my iPerf test showed that I had better internet network speeds with this router. There were still some weirdnesses I've been dealing with. A while back, in response to a question from Linda Goucher, I wrote a post about how you can create a QR code that represents your Wi-Fi password. Since that post, I've gotten even fancier. I wrote my own iOS shortcut to create that QR code. Now I have this party trick where I can help other people make their own QR codes. I'm super fun to hang out with at parties. Anyway, I printed out my QR codes for my guest and good networks, and I put them in a drawer in my kitchen. Several times, I've proudly whipped them out to let someone on my network, and they pretty much never work. We've had them try to type in the password, and they can't get on our network. I also noticed that when I try to talk to the pizza place on Friday nights to call in my order, same order every single week, I'm sure you're shocked. Anyway, if I try to use my cell phone with Wi-Fi calling, they can't hear me well enough to take my order, and I end up having to switch to a landline like an old person. Guess where I'm standing when this happens? You got it in the kitchen, the same place the QR codes don't work. Now, I'm not all that far from the router, but I am standing kind of diagonally away from it, and it's possible the refrigerator is interfering in some way. Okay, second weirdness. We have three ring cameras, the original ring doorbell, a backyard floodlight cam, and a side yard spotlight cam. While we can connect really quickly to the doorbell cam from our phones when we get an alert, The backyard camera, and especially the side yard cameras, were really slow to connect. Sometimes the side yard camera would never connect at all. In the Ring app, you get a grid of options for each camera, and one of the buttons is Device Health. In this screen, they show you, amongst other things, the signal strength. The measurement is called RSSI, or Received Signal Strength Indicator. RSSI is a measure of the power present in a received radio signal. RSSI is defined in decibels, or dB, where the less negative the measurement, the better the signal strength. This is yet another reason I'm glad I decided not to go into electrical engineering, because a normal person would say, the bigger numbers are better. Or perhaps, if the bigger, if the number is negative, the closer to zero is the better. But no, they have to say the less negative measurement is better. Anyway. The ring doorbell is sort of under the room where the router lives, and it has an RSSI of minus 46 dB, which earns it a green rating in the ring app, so there's no problem to be solved there. However, the backyard floodlight cam had an RSSI of negative 65 dB. So the first one was minus 46, this is minus 65 dB, and the side yard spotlight spotlight cam was even worse at minus 70 dB. Don't worry, you're not going to have to remember all of these numbers for the test at the end. The thing to remember as I go through this is that the signal strength to the doorbell was good and the signal strength to the two cameras on the back and side of the the house were both pretty bad. Now, if you'd like to see some RSSI measurements yourself without having to buy anything new, hold down the option key on a Mac and tap on the Wi-Fi signal in the menu bar. In addition to the list of all available Wi-Fi networks, the one to which you're connected will show way more information. One of the metrics it shows is actually RSSI. Now, I couldn't resist comparing the RSSI numbers on the ring to the value for my Mac on Wi-Fi. When I did that, the comparison didn't make any sense. The two ring cameras had obviously bad values of minus 65 and minus 70 dB, but my MacBook Pro sitting less than 10 feet from my massively powerful router had an RSSI of negative 61 dB. How could this be? How could it be almost as bad? I'm right next to the router. 
which I started reading up on RSSI. And according to the Wikipedia article about it, it says, there is no standardized relationship of any particular physical parameter to the RSSI reading. Vendors and chipset makers provide their own accuracy, granularity, and range for the actual power, measured as milliwatts or decibels, and their range of RSSI values. Well, okay, you know that term, your mileage may vary? I guess that's true with RSSI. From from this information, my in-house electrical engineer and I infer that you can't compare RSSI values from manufacturer to manufacturer or even Wi-Fi chipset to chipset. But you can make relative judgments between devices by the same vendor. And if you say move a router, you could you could check it on the same device twice. You know, if you hold those things still, you can kind of make some some assumptions here. So I ran another test to make sure that RSSI measurements mean nothing when compared between vendors. I brought one of our ring chimes upstairs and I plugged it in right next to my MacBook Pro. The ring chime is exactly what it says on the tin. It chimes when the doorbell has been rung or one of the motion sensors on the cameras is triggered. I can see it's RSSI in the ring app and compare it to the Mac. Remember the Mac was at minus 61 dB? That darn ring chime sitting right next to my Mac showed minus 51 dB at nearly that same location. Okay, what we do know from all this is that you can compare the RSSI of the same device under different networking conditions, so this will still be a valid measure for me to figure out where I might need to boost my signal. The RSSI measurements on the cameras absolutely gave me a numerical value to prove, justify, I could get to buy some new hardware. Because that's what this has all been about, right? Well, I tootled out to Amazon and I took a look at the extenders Netgear was offering and I settled on the Netgear Nighthawk X6S EX8000 mesh extender. I think we'll call it the Netgear EX8000 for short, if that's okay. There are certainly less expensive range extenders, but I went for the EX8000 for the specs and features. Dave Hamilton had explained in our chit-chat discussion that these range extenders from Netgear work with a lot of other non-Netgear routers, so hopefully this discussion will be applicable to a lot of people listening. The EX8000 is a tri-band router, so I'll still have two 5 GHz bands and a 2.4 GHz band. This extender doesn't create three more network names you have to fish through like extenders did in the old days. It simply adopts the same names as the networks it's extending. My main network is called Nighthawk 5 GHz, super imaginative. With the extender, I still only have one network with that name. The huge advantage of having this single set of names is that you don't have to reattach all your devices to a new name. The meshiness of this router with the R8500 router, I mean, the meshiness of this extender with the R8500 router will automatically pick up the devices that will be best suited to talk to it. So as you move around with your phone, it just gets on the right one. They, They hand each other off. It all works beautifully. This extender is an AC3000 router, and luckily Dave Hamilton did the math for us to explain what that means. You do remember all the numbers he threw out, right? Yeah, me neither. Anyway, it means it has one 2.4 gigahertz radio at 400 megabits per second and two 5 gigahertz radios at 833 megabits per second and 1733 megabits per second when added all together gives you a nonsense number, but it's around 3000. But they add them together for no reason. Interestingly, the Orbi mesh router that I tested my house was also an AC3000 router. So I did a bunch of network site survey stuff that is a whole giant story in of itself that I may tell at another date. My plan had been to figure out the best spot to put that extender, but I didn't use uh, end up using any of the data I had collected. 
Instead, I put the extender where it was most convenient to me and where it wasn't entirely illogical. Logically, you don't want to put the extender where you've got a terrible signal, like right behind the refrigerator. And as Dave explained, you don't want it where it really overlaps your original router signal either. I put mine downstairs about 10 feet from where that pesky side yard camera was whining. Setup was a little weird. They've got instructions in the box and online that are oddly different depending on whether you're using an iPhone or an Android phone. Two different websites to use. Very weird. And then there's a third way of doing it using a computer. They have a canned guided setup, which I tried to use at first. And when I was done, it did not do that magic to mirror the names of my network. Instead, I had six networks when I was done instead of the original three. I had to factory reset the device to get back to the beginning and do it by hand as I should have in the first place. After that, it was an easy setup. I had one problem, though. In my house, I have the 2.4 and 5 gigahertz networks, of course, but I also have a 2.4 gigahertz guest network. On that guest network, I put all of the non-HomeKit compatible devices that worry me from a security standpoint. Any Windows or Android phones that come into my house are also relegated to that network, especially the ones that I own. But I couldn't figure out how to get the range extender to extend that guest network. I decided to give their tech support line a call, and I got through to a very knowledgeable fellow who gave me the answer. But it wasn't the answer I wanted. He explained that the extender can't extend the guest network at all. But guess what it can do? It can create another guest network that's still isolated from my trusted devices. This is not ideal because now I have four networks instead of three, but for these uh, these ring devices, this is going to work. After I installed the EX8000 extender, Steve checked the RSSI levels for the two problematic cameras. The side spotlight cam was improved from minus 70 dB to minus 46 dB. That's a 24 dB improvement. We'll talk in a minute about what that really means. The rear floodlight cam, which wasn't as bad to start off with, improved even more. The RSSI on the rear camera went from minus 65 dB to minus 36 dB, which is a 29 dB improvement. It turned green in the camera app, and it was always oh, just, it was a beautiful thing. It's time for some more math. I'm thinking I need a jingle for this so that David Roth knows when he can put his little pumpkin head down on the desk for a while, and then maybe another jingle to tell him when I'm done so he can lift it back up and start listening. All this DB nonsense makes my head hurt, but we can use it to calculate how much better the signal is. Let's say we had a 20 dB improvement, just to make the math easy. The way you figure out the power improvement is you take 20, the 20 dB we had, you divide it by 10. That gives us 2. Everybody with me so far? Now we raise 10 to the power of 2, which is the same as saying 10 squared, which we all know is 100. So that tells us if we had a 20 dB improvement, the signal strength is 100 times as powerful. Okay, got that? Now we know the equation with the easy ones. Let's look at the measurements we have on the two cameras. We said that the side yard improved by 24 dB. 24 divided by 10 is 2.4. 10 to the 2.4 is 250. Yeah, so a 20 dB improvement is 100 times as powerful, but a 24 dB improvement is 250 times as powerful. I told you this dB stuff was weird, right? Let's do one more so you get the hang of it. The backyard floodlight cam saw a 29 dB improvement. So one more time, going through it, 29 divided by 10 is 2.9. 10 to the 2.9 is around 800 times as strong. 
I thought that was really weird that it goes from 250 times as strong to 800 times as strong when you just went from 29 dB to 20 or 24 dB to 29 dB. So I had Steve check my math and he said it was right. Isn't that interesting though? I know I said I was done, but I do have one more. In my den, two f- at 10 feet from my router, we recorded using the option click on the Wi-Fi signal trick to measure the RSSI for my MacBook Pro and it showed negative 51 dB. I decided to write this story up sitting on the back patio. I didn't have to do any configuration to to get connected to that fancy pants new extender because the name was the same. I wrote this up at least 100 feet from the router, diagonally through the house, might even gone through the refrigerator, and I'm sitting outside. My signal was negative 59 dB. So it only dropped 8 dB from being right next to the router, which we can calculate this power difference. That's 10 to the 0.8, it's 6.3 times. So it's only 6.3 times as powerful of a signal in my office upstairs next to the router as it is downstairs outside. So that is probably the best proof that this new uh, router extender is doing a really great job. The really important part is that now when we get an alert from our ring cameras, we can actually connect to them very quickly to see that silly brown cat who likes to walk around in our backyard. Who knows, maybe the pizza guy will be able to hear me on Wi-Fi calling. At $175 for the Netgear EX8000 range extender, I spent about half of what I would have had to buy uh, to, to pay for an Orbi or an Eero mesh router system, and the performance is excellent. They make other extenders. Maybe you don't need one quite as powerful as what I got, but I can definitely highly recommend the Netgear EX8000 range extender. If your router can work with it, you should go get one. Well, that's probably enough. We should wind things up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. I'm going to be taking a bunch of vacations this summer uh, coming up soon, and Bart and Alistair are going to take over for me, and I think I'm even going to have to tap the uh, SMR podcast guys to come in and stand in too, because we're going to be gone a lot. So we want the show to always take place, so it's time to dust off those microphones, write those reviews, and start sending them in and uh, and help us out. Really appreciate if you uh, start thinking of those things that are sitting around on your desk that you use all the time, that you're really excited about software, hardware, start working on reviews. That would be really, really cool. You can also follow me on Twitter at PodFeed. Remember, everything good starts with PodFeed.com. You want to be cool like Eduardo? Go to PodFeed.com slash Patreon and become a patron of the PodFeed podcast. You want to start talking to the community, to other fun people and other new Silicastaways? You can do that in Facebook at PodFeed.com slash Facebook or on Slack at PodFeed.com slash Slack. You want to join the live chat? PodFeed.com slash chat. You want to find those Amazon affiliate links? PodFeed.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join us in the fun of the live show, head on over to PodFeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.